Well, we're going to be in Philippians 1 and just hope if you're a guest with us, we uh, welcome your presence with us and hope you have a great morning and hope you're encouraged to trust and love Christ more as a result of your time together with us. So Philippians 1, we're going to be in 12 through 30. And so I'm going to read that in, in a moment, but really we're going to look at three facets today of this text. One is what is our mission What's the mindset that God uses to sustain that mission? And what's our mutual boast when we invest in that mission together? That's what we're going to look at from Philippians 1, 12 through 30. Let me read this with us. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, you're going to find out in a minute, Paul's writing this from prison. This is an update to a church he loved. He wanted them to know that what has happened to him has actually advanced the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice Because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound." Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. This is God's word for us this morning. Look with me first at the mission. Chapter 1, verse 27. Just one thing, Paul turns from his circumstances to what he wants them to apply from his circumstances. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there on your outline, the mission we have is to accent the gospel as we advance the gospel. 
accent the gospel as we advance the gospel. Now, like an accent wall in a home that brings out the decor in the room, our life together as a church is to accurately display the content of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, and draw people's attention to it with depth and dimensions and clarity for the beauty that it is. The culture among us as a church, as the church at Burke Hills, should be giving an accurate reflection of the glory of the good news of Christ crucified to the world that needs to see it and hear it. The gospel is the good news of a saving Christ that we've sung about this morning for sinners like you and me who reconciles us to God by living the life that we could never live, by dying the death we deserve, and by rising triumphantly over the grave three days later to say it's finished. We can be right with God through Christ. And living worthy of that message means our corporate witness is congruent with the glory of its transforming power. So think about the good news of his authority. What does it do? Every Sunday we open our word. We listen to him speak to us. Why? Because we know he runs our lives better than we do. Repentance is the, the direct result of his, his worthiness. And so our corporate repentance reflects the glory of his kingdom and authority. Think about the good news of reconciliation with God at the core of the gospel message. What happens when we're reconciled to one another at a horizontal level is that we're accenting the, the gospel we are entrusted to advance. So Paul says a, a worthy church of the gospel, a church on mission, accents the message in its relationships and rhythms of its corporate life together. So in a fresh way this week, I was, I was kind of convicted and compelled by, by something my mom gave us as a family. So she's been going through her house, and this book was gifted to us this week. This was a, a cookbook, America's cookbook that my grandfather used uh, when he was the, the cook in charge of a mess hall when he was stationed somewhere in America cooking for the soldiers during World War II. It was published in 1944, and it says it's a new and revised edition because it added a chapter on war and what it looks like to cook, whoopsie, cook during a war. And it just opened my eyes for what it means to collectively embrace a mission. I mean, this chapter is laced with blood earnest resolve about how to use flour and eggs in ways that are appropriate for wartime. Here are a few quotes for you. Appetizers are mostly on the luxury list in wartime. They gotta go, right? Pastries and pies need not be war casualties, <laughs> but there's a way to do them appropriate to wartime. Rationing has affected quality, quantity, and variety of meat. Top quality goes to the armed forces, as of course it should. Since when did you look for the ethical framework for war through a cookbook? This is what happens when we collectively embrace a mission, but this is my favorite. Failures, I put it up on the screen for you. Failures in cooking are unthinkable now that any waste of food is sabotage. It kind of shocks us, doesn't it? How comprehensively engaging the war that was happening not even on our own soil was intended to transform everything about the kitchen 
in the 40s. The mindset of the mission had changed the menu in the home. Cooking mistakes. I mean, look at it. Compromise the mission. The mission meant sacrifice at the dinner table so that the front lines could get what they needed. The outcome was collectively ours as, an, as a country to own. We were investing in the war every time we sat down to eat. That's what this, this chapter is, is unpacking for us. And Paul here is saying that our mission as a church is to be a church whose manner of life matches the glory of its message that it gives the world as it advances that message to the world. It means that we reorient our whole lives, our menu, our mindset, everything around this grand mission that God has entrusted to us as the church at Brook Hills. And the Christian Standard Version has helpfully incorporated this idea of citizenship into their translation of 127. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because it's inherent in the original, that word live your life has this idea of of politics bound up into it. Be a worthy citizen. And if we're going to accurately accent the gospel on earth, recalling our heavenly citizenship is critical to our mission. Our orientation and identity lie elsewhere. Earthly alliances and some earthly agendas warp our message. Heaven is where we wholly align, politically speaking, church. I think we need that to settle in on us. In our highly politicized age, heaven is where we wholly politically align. Let's be worthy citizens of that kingdom and that king and fulfill our mission on earth. Not only is recalling that heavenly orientation needed, but Paul goes on to unpack what this mission looks like in action, what a church that is on mission, a church that accents the gospel would look like if there were flesh on those bones. And look what he says in 27 as you keep reading. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So there on your outline, a church that accents the gospel stands firm together as one. A church consistent with the gospel message does not splinter easily. Our corporate posture should be sturdy. We're standing firm in the truth that Jesus is king. And that means our relationships are sticky in the bond that he created among us. We stand firm, not as isolated Christians, but we stand firm together. That's how we accent the gospel message. We stand firm in the spirit that has been given to us in whom our unity finds expression and identity. So a fractured community is out of step with the message about a reconciling God. This is probably a good word for us as there was a big rivalry over the weekend. I was thinking about NC State and UNC. You guys weren't thinking about that game, were you? But if we act like the world, then our unity is just skin deep and it's easily undone. And I'll just encourage you, the way to protect our unity and stand firm together often comes down to to small acts of I am sorry is a great word. Please forgive me or refraining from a word that would upset and undermine what God is doing among us. The world's unity is so fragile, but a felt, sturdy, 
together owned and valued unity should be present among us as we advance the gospel. Secondly, a church that accents the gospel and stays on mission, secondly, strives together for the advancement of the gospel. There in verse 27, if you keep reading, he unpacks it this way. Contending together for the faith of the gospel is how he finishes that verse. So this is entering the contest that's going on in the world and pushing the gospel out into the world. We accent the gospel as we advance the gospel. And he hits that unity note again. We're together on this team. This isn't isolated Christians out on their own doing their own things. We are together to advance this gospel in the world. Like teammates, we strive side by side. We sweat side by side in the trenches to advance the gospel message in the world. You see, a church in neutral that has stopped proclaiming the gospel says something about its message, namely that it's not worth sharing. But those to whom Christ is precious, Thomas Chalmers said, will long that others taste of that preciousness. So the degree to which we give ourselves to the proclamation of the message is the degree to which we prize the message itself. So what does striving together mean in action? Letter A there on your outline. We engage in the mission with all-out effort as if we were a startup company. We engage in the mission with all-out effort as if we were a startup company. To be a member of a church is to enter into a partnership for the progress of the gospel. Now, in our society, we buy membership to things like Costco, right? Because we like bulk, right? Unless the supply chain has interrupted that flow. We buy membership to country clubs. We buy membership to gyms because sometimes we go, right? That's not the idea of membership or fellowship in the first century. Fellowship was bound to this idea of partnership. Membership meant co-laboring for the mission. They got out of the waters of baptism at Philippi and they were handled their dog tags in the mission. That's what Paul is rejoicing over from the first day in chapter one of their conversion. They got in the work. They got their hands dirty in advancing the gospel. They were contending for its advancement. Being included in Christ. And being a part of the church meant being enlisted for the mission of Christ. And in common language in the first century, this is how that word fellowship or partnership played out. D.A. Carson has this great quote that I put up on the screen for you. If John and Harry buy a boat and start a fishing business, they have entered into a fellowship, a partnership. The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Both John and Harry put their savings into the fishing boat. Now they share the vision that will put the fledgling company on its feet. Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. There may be overtones of warmth and intimacy, but the heart of the matter is the shared vision of what is of transcendental importance, a vision that calls forth our commitment. The church at Philippi rolled up their sleeves and got involved in the advance of the gospel. They continued their witness in Philippi. They persevered in their prayers for Paul, and they sent money to support him in his ministry. That's what it meant to be a partner, to be in fellowship, was to forge a path forward for gospel advancement. And notice in verse 30, their their, uh, expression of this engagement had two dimensions. It was one in Philippi when Paul was side by side with them and he saw this among them, that they were engaged in the same struggle. They were doing the work of proclaiming the gospel, contending for the gospel there in Philippi. 
But then when Paul was absent, what did they do? They sent reinforcements. They're praying for Paul. They had this global dimension. So they were faithful locally and faithful globally. It had two dimensions to this engagement. But the church at Philippi didn't, didn't own this mission like an established business. Now, what do I mean by that? An established business has the luxury, every employee has the luxury of passing the baton to someone else to get it done or to handle the problem or to resolve the issue, right? Well, what happens in a startup mentality? I've never been a part of a startup, but this is what we should own as a part of individual members of the church at Brook Hills. It's all hands on deck all the time, all out effort. Being a part of an established business means it's someone else's problem if a problem arises. Pass it on, but a startup mentality means no, sign me up. It's on me to fix this. It's on me to fuel this. This morning, even, you received a report about how many of you last year owned and embraced that that startup mentality of investing in the furtherance of the gospel around the world. And we wanted to give you this report to show you the impact that you had as a church around the world last year through your enlistment in the cause of Christ and your investment in what we call our global offering. Our global offering is how we send the gospel abroad as a church. And it goes beyond our our regular giving patterns to sustain our long-termers, to send out mid-termers, to send out short-term teams, to, to partner with others over there, to help in time of crisis. And we want to encourage you with this report. There's going to be a 10-page version coming out this week that shows you even more in depth what you were a part of this past year. But also, we encourage you in the month of December to head to the community room where we're going to have a portrait gallery where there'll be more details about what you invested in as a church to see the gospel advance. You rolled up your sleeves last year, and the gospel has advanced by God's grace. Hallelujah. But rolling up your sleeves this year is our privilege, right? 2022 awaits us. And there are more people on Andrew Whitehead's board in his office wanting to be sent from our church. And we want to fuel their efforts. And I, I think of a startup mentality like this, this that I heard about Colton Fisher, an eighth grader among us. So Colton last year decided to, to, to kind of uh, sharpen his woodworking skills and sell ornaments, and all the proceeds would go to Global Offering. And so he was able to, to raise $700 to send the gospel abroad last year as an eighth grader. That's what it means to have a startup mentality. The mission is mine to own, and I'm going to do what I can to invest in the cause. The menu changes at home when the mission is our priority. We stand together, we strive together as vested partners in the outcome of the mission. And once again, we get the privilege of doing that this next year for the greatest calls on the planet. I mean, sometimes when I read a report like you have before you, I just want to pinch myself. We get to do this? Are you kidding me? Wow. Look at the impact of what God has done through you as a church. Letter B there, the second way we engage and strive together is We don't let fear derail us. So if our bond accents the gospel, that first point, as we stand together, if our mutual burden of advancing the mission also accents the value of the gospel here, the boldness with which we approach the mission has an impact on what we reflect about the mission. You see, if we we fear an earthly king, then we say something about the only king to whom he will bow. We're saying, He's not as worthy as we thought he was, right? It doesn't line up to fear an earthly king when we have an eternal king. 
And we need not be intimidated because of two realities in this text. God is proving something in verse 28 in the conflict that we're enduring, and Christ is precious in that conflict. You see, the opposition's hostility is only showing them that they're on the wrong side of human history. It's a sign to them, but it's a reinforcing, comforting sign to us that we're on the right side of history, and God is forging our salvation through that experience. And what happens on the flip side of our, con- of, of our, of our conflict that we engage in to contend for the gospel is this gracious purpose of God. He says to not only grant us to believe in Christ, but to suffer with Christ. The only thing our opposition can do is drive us further into Christ's arms. How do you frighten a man that's not afraid of death? (laughs) It counts dying as gain. (laughs) Do you see what's happening here? I was praying last, uh, a couple weeks ago at our second Sunday prayer time for the nations that we host every second Sunday in the community room at 8 a.m. And we were praying for a city in North Africa. And I was praying with Marilyn and Gordon Day, seasoned saints that have themselves served overseas. And our, our, our long-termers were explaining how difficult it is to get a visa in this land. And they were just talking about how the cultural things that they run into in that whole process are so frustrating. And I'm sitting there praying with Marilyn after they talk about how frustrating it is. And she says that she, she hopes that they can, that God would give them the strength to count it a joy to walk into that visa office, endure all those trials, because all it does is help them depend more on Christ. Marilyn gets it. She gets it. Suffering and sacrifice for the sake of the cause are not to be avoided at all costs, but be embraced because grace governs the whole process. All it can do is drive you further to Christ and press anything not of Christ further and further away from your heart. To Brook Hills, let's stand together, let's strive together for the advancement of the gospel with all courage and fearless for what he might do through us. But if we're gonna be that kind of church, we've gotta embrace a mindset. A mindset has to be functioning among us so that that kind of mission would find expression through us. You see, Paul, when he's unpacking his circumstances in 12 through 26, is not just updating his friends, although he is. He wants to infect them, infuse them with a virus, and it's a boldness about the mission with which we can approach our lives here on earth. You see, the mindset that God uses there on your outline to drive the mission forward prizes Christ above all. The mindset that God uses to drive the mission forward prizes Christ above all. Paul begins in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and you expect him to talk about the difficulties of prison, the dilemma he's in, but what does he say? What has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And in two ways, it was advancing the gospel. Among the imperial guards that he was proclaiming to and brothers outside on the street were getting more courage by the way he was enduring this hardship. And so they themselves had taken the baton and run with it. On, in the streets in Rome, they were proclaiming the gospel and his heart was overjoyed. Think about this. He was a man in prison, but the gospel was running free. And so his heart was rejoicing. Jail had furthered his joy because Christ was the talk of the town. When this man is squeezed, what oozes out of him is Christ, his prize, his treasure, his delight. And life was just simple for Paul. What happened to Paul didn't matter to Paul. Look what he says in 120. 
My eager and expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, this was his unflinching resolve of his life, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This was the non-negotiable resolve of the Apostle Paul on the table. Simply put, what happens and matters most to Paul is not Paul, and Paul is completely happy in that world. And isn't that so odd to our modern ears? It's strange to our modern ears that Paul is not preoccupied with Paul and his heart is leaping off the page with joy. The mirror did not preoccupy him. He had been freed from a much more confining prison that I think we often find ourselves in in our day and age. And it's the prison of self-preoccupation. David Well said what plagues the modern mind is a form of pride. We think a lot of ourselves and we think a lot about ourselves. But Paul wasn't always like this. He himself was impressed with his own religious resume that he unpacks in chapter three. He loved his credentials, but then Christ interrupted his self-preoccupation. So this mindset there on your outline begins with the mind-blowing worth of Jesus Christ. This mindset begins by recognizing how utterly worthy and of surpassing value is Jesus Christ to know him. And chapter two tells us what was happening in Paul's soul and what interrupted his self-preoccupation because there Paul includes a hymn that tells us about Christ. And I included the International Standard Version so that you could see kind of the, the poetic rhythm that they tried to uh, stay consistent with as they translated these words. But read this as I read. Have the same attitude among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. In God's own form existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness, a servant's form did he possess, a mortal man becoming in human form he chose to be and lived in all humility, death on a cross obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of everyone will fall wherever they're residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus Christ is Lord, while God the Father praising. Jesus' breathtaking humility is simply hard to take in from a passage like this. this. This hymn traces his descent to death and step by excruciating step. He had every right to be disinterested in us, every right to stiff arm us, every right to refuse to bother with us and enjoy the fellowship of the Trinity forever. And what did he do? He chose to not exploit his godness to his own advantage, to not use his authority for his own well-being, but he took on flesh. He entered our story. He stooped even lower to become a servant, even lower to have obedience cost him everything. And then the lowest of the low, his death was not just any death. It was death on a horrific and shameful cross. It's almost hard to take in if you've ever had somebody sacrifice for you and they just keep lavishing it on. It's almost like in every step you just want to say, Jesus, that's, that's enough, man. That, this far and no further, it's okay. I, I don't, 
okay, you're going to go there. Oh, you're going to go there. Oh, it's just mind-blowing the magnitude of what Jesus did. Never before has anyone who deserves so much stooped so low. Never before. And because he did it, he did it all. God has given him the matchless name that every tongue will profess and the matchless unrivaled authority before whom every knee will buckle. This is majesty forged in meekness. This is a wonder of wonders to behold. And this sent shockwaves through Paul's whole framework for his life. It is intended to send shockwaves through ours. This is the Christ that pulverized Paul's pride and became his prize. He was absolutely leveled by him. Friends, have you seen this Christ? Have you followed him down step by step into that grave where he died for sinners like you and me? Have you followed him to that shameful cross? Have you seen him take on flesh? Do you see him now risen, exalted, unparalleled in glory, unrivaled in majesty? This is the Christ of the Bible. This is the Christ that frees you from the burden. You know what burden it frees you, he frees you from? You. This is what compelled Paul to so succinctly say the summation of his life. For me to live is Christ. Everything was bound up with Christ. It was simply unthinkable for Paul to entertain anything that competed with Christ in his heart for adoration or allegiance. If Christ was the talk of the town and he's in prison, yes, win, win. Oh, students, church in this room, our culture will not lodge Christ at the center of your life. Our whole society is built on one premise toward you putting you at the center of your universe. For me, the world says, to live is me. And that tiny little loop of self-preoccupation that that measures your worth by how many likes you get on Instagram or some other degree of of others, uh, either approval of you or non-approval of you, no, no. The mirror is not what your life is about. It's about the majesty, the worth, the surpassing value of knowing this Christ. I encourage you over this break to put down your phone, grab a cup of coffee, pick up a sermon, Jonathan Edwards, The Excellencies of Jesus Christ, something from Charles Spurgeon, something from Octavius Winslow, and just be with Christ. Look at him until you see him. Stare at the text of scripture until you stare, until you delight. Watch how this freedom works itself out two specific ways in this passage. When Christ is prized, what causes us pain isn't ultimate. The progress of the mission is our priority. Some people were seeking to do Paul harm by proclaiming the gospel and agitating his opponents against him And Paul is out rejoicing them in prison. And he's not even puffed up by loyal friends either because Christ is all that matters to Paul. We can be so small when we let hurt and pain dictate our mission in our lives. But Paul was a man whose priorities were straight because his prize was straight. Christ was his prize. Therefore, he prioritized the mission above his personal well-being. 
The progress of the mission matters more than personal hurt to those who prize Christ. The bigger hurt gets in your life, the smaller your resolve to, to be about the mission will be. Secondly, I, I'll do this one quickly. When Christ is prized, what causes us pleasure is an ultimate. Others' progress in Christ is our priority. So when Christ is prized, our pain is not ultimate and our pleasure is not ultimate. Others' progress in Christ is our priority. For Paul, it's clear. Death is gain. I get to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But death for him meant gain for him, but it meant loss for the church at Philippi. So what does he say? It's more necessary that I stay for you. Death was gained for him in a private way where he could enjoy Christ forever and ever, but life meant Christ more and more, the joy of the church at Philippi, their progress in Christ. He put others' well-being and their enjoyment of Christ above his own enjoyment of Christ. That's what happens when we prize Christ. We start prioritizing others' progress in Christ and the mission's progress in the world. You see, that mindset is needed to sustain the mission. You've all noticed recently that we've been preoccupied with the global supply chain issue, right? Rising prices, maybe it even affected your Thanksgiving meal, sofas being delayed months, computer chips still waiting for those, right? Somehow chicken wings are in the mix. I don't know how that happened, but this is what we're waiting on these things, right? What's up? Friends, prizing Christ means the progress of a different supply chain becomes our priority. Paul prized Christ, which meant his priorities revolved around the gospel supply chain. As long as the gospel was trucking along in the streets here locally and around the world globally, and the church was digging deeper into its joy, that was Paul's joy. And we need to capture the centrality of the gospel supply chain. And we get to invest in that in this season that we will be talking about in the month of December as we talk about our global offering. And our mutual boast at the end of the day will be this. Our sac- the sacrifices necessary to advance the mission mean we share in the victory. This, tone has a, a, this text has a tone of mutual boasting. Their prayers are being answered that Paul would survive, and so their boasting in Christ Jesus is increased. His, his boasting is increased because their joy in Christ is, is overflowing because their answered prayers are there. So it's like we all got time on the field. We're all bloodied in the game, and therefore the victory just tastes so much sweeter. See, when we get to glory, that's when we will taste of all the, the glorious goodness of what we are able to invest here in earth. Let us give ourselves to the call. So let me ask you, has anything rivaled Christ in your heart? Has anything pushed his mission to the periphery of your priorities? Let's let the mission of Christ change our mindset. First, let's let the magnitude of Christ change our mindset. That will change the way we approach our mission. That will change the way we approach our menu at home, because church, anything less is sabotage.